Deuteronomy 23 verse 5 is our text this evening. Bound to have read it several times, but I've never seen it. That ever happened to you when you, you read the Bible and something jumps out at you. And whenever we read the section in which this verse is, it's understandable why we might have seen it. Because it's one of those sections of, of law that applies to Old Testament Israel. It's in a paragraph about the Ammonites and the Moabites. It's the sort of place that your eye would just skim down. But in the middle of it, there is a truth that is rooted in God's very character. In fact, it's a truth that really describes the whole storyline of the Bible. And as we look at these little phrases in Scripture that start with the phrase, but God, or but the Lord, or but He, or but your God. And as we're looking at these phrases, there's loads of them. As I said last time, there's about 260 of them. Um, and we're not going to look at all of them. There's about 40 or 50 of them that really, you know, are really noteworthy in a sense that really stand out. We're not even going to look at all of those. Many of those are in passages that I've uh, either Johnny or I've already preached on. There's one in Exodus 13 where it says, but you know, but God took them down uh, the side of the Red Sea, and you know, He seems to be taking them into difficulty, but He's going to use it for great good. Uh, there's um, Psalm 73. We, we sing, um, we, we sing it as yet, but also it can be translated. But, uh, but I am always with him. But I am always with, with him. Um, well, there's another one in Psalm 73. That's about me. Um, another one in Psalm 73. That's about God. And there's one in there's Romans five uh, and verse eight. But God demonstrates His own love to us in this that while we were yet sinners, uh, Christ died uh, for us. We were going to look this evening at two verses from Genesis, uh, from Genesis 45 uh, and Genesis 50. So then, this is Genesis 45, verse 8. So then, Joseph says, it was not you who sent me here. He's saying it to his brothers. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh and lord of his entire household and ruler of Egypt. But God, he did it, not the brothers. Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And I was going to pick that as one of the ones to preach on and tie it in with Genesis 45, uh, verse 8. And then as my eyes scan down the list of the references of but God or but the Lord... On down I saw Deuteronomy 23, 5 and I thought there's one that's completely fresh to me. I want to take it and as I looked at it, it, I saw and it dawned on me that verse sums up exactly what's being said in Genesis 50 verse 20. But it puts it in more general terms for us all uh, to enjoy. So we're going to to look at this. We'll be referencing Genesis 50 uh, verse 20 because this verse exposes for us the foundations of the God who takes what's intended for harm and uses it for good. 
It exposes us the, the reason, or one of the reasons why. And this Genesis 20, or Genesis 50 verse 20, Deuteronomy 23 verse 5, uh, and many of these but God verses are everyday examples of Romans 8, 28. We know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Or we know that God works all things. doesn't matter what it is. He works all things for the good of those who love him. And sometimes in difficulties, uh, Christians hang on to that verse. And sometimes for Christians in difficulties, other Christians bombard them with that verse. And, and sometimes they think, oh, if I hear it again. Well, let's look at these but God phrases because they show how over and over and over again in the history of God's people, there have been moments, all kinds of all things, that were intended for harm. And God works it for good. And this little verse sums them all up. And it shows us why we can have hope. Uh, to have hope, it seems to me that you need two things. Uh, the, the little boy that's being bullied in the playground, uh, two, two things are necessary for him to have hope. Somebody more powerful needs to arrive on the scene. But then he really needs that more powerful person to be on his side. If he's not on his side, he's for an even bigger hiding. And we, need, we need something more powerful than the problem. And we need a relationship to that something. You know, uh, There's a small fire breaking out uh, around you. Uh, and... Uh, you need something more powerful than the fire. Well, what's that water? There's a, a large, heavy thundercloud overhead, and it's over your head, and it, it, it starts to rain in that spot, and it puts the fire out. It's power, and it's connected to you. It's, it's in relationship to you in some way, and you can have hope. Power and relationship are what bring us hope. Listen to this verse. But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Power and love, relationship. And those are the two things that we want to see this evening. First of all, an overwhelming, sorry, an overturning power. An overturning power. The background, as we've said, to this particular verse the context of this verse is Moses is giving the laws again to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land he's been outlining how they are to live differently from the nations in particular he says to them in verse 2 no one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the 10th generation and there seems to be a connection with verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite. Well, why those two nations? Well, in Genesis 19, uh, those, uh, those two nations are born. Ammon and Moab are the, the offspring of Lot um, in an incestuous relationship uh, with his daughters. And... Uh, that's, what, that's the tie-in here. And that uh, here we see God saying, no, no. They're, they're, they're not part of my people and nor are they to be part 
of my people. But also, in particular, not only did they, in a sense, come from a bad place, uh, but their behavior to the children of Israel had been wrong. They had refused to provide for them on their way when they came out of Egypt. And then, more particularly, they had hired this international uh, renowned seer, um, Balaam, to come and to curse the people of God. Israel had actually been forbidden in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 2 and verse 9 from attacking Moab. They'd been told, no, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Um, and, but Moab here, seem, the king of Moab seems to take fright at all of these people or maybe he sees an opportunity to get rid of them because there seems to be hostility between them uh, no matter. Uh, and he says this is maybe an opportunity to get rid of them. And he summons uh, Balaam to come and to curse them. Balaam didn't want to go. Uh, so the ambassadors uh, go back to him and they summon him. And, and God gives Balaam permission to go. Um, I don't know. We, 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 Balaam's a strange figure. We shouldn't think of him as a prophet in the same league as Isaiah or Jeremiah or Elijah. The you know godly men who who spoke the word of God, but in some shape or form, this man had some connection to the true God, and God used him in various ways. But he's not a moral man. Uh, we'll, we'll not be looking into that this evening. But we'll uh, you know he's he's almost the Judas of the Old Testament. Um, but uh, he. he He's told by God to say only what God says uh, to him to say. And three times he blesses uh, the children of Israel. And it's almost comic. Did you get it? He opens his mouth to speak. And Balak's waiting for a curse. And Balaam pours out this great stream of blessing. Balak says, what do you do that for? And then uh, he says, well, come over here. and you'll, you'll, Maybe you'll not see all of them. And, and maybe it'll work over here. And... Uh, verse 20, uh, 25, um, verse, verse 11 of chapter 23, um, Balak says, What have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. Uh, verse 25, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. Uh, verse 26, uh, Balaam says, Did I not tell you I must do whatever the Lord says? And then in chapter 23, verse 20, there's that great statement. I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. And it culminates in chapter 24, verse, uh, verse 9. May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. And Balaam summoned to bring a curse, a, a judgment on Israel, is only able to bless. We see God's overturning power. He turns what was meant for harm into good. Now, perhaps you think, but Mark, surely a curse is only words. You know, what is it? You know, we don't really put much stock in that sort of thing. In some ways... I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. Either part of these things because we're so westernized that we forget really that there is a whole demonic realm 
uh, you know, there is that whole side of things. Um, and throughout Scripture, uh, cursing, not using foul language, but bringing a negative statement is seen as, as something um, effective. And it may have been that God had given Balaam uh, power to, to curse or to bless. But whatever it is, it's not a nothing moment for God references it here as an instance of his, his care and power and love. And at the very least, it's illustrative of God's power to transform what's intended for evil into actual good. And we see it in the content of the blessing and we see it in the manner of the blessing. Balak intends harm and God intends good. And the, the contents of the blessing really echo what God said to Abram away back in Genesis 12 that we've been looking at in the last few months. A promise of land and flourishing and relationship. And then for good measure, Balaam throws in a fourth prophecy of blessing that there is going to be a mysterious ruler who will arise from, from Jacob and he will bring ultimate victory. This seems to be a prophecy of the Messiah. And so uh, the very content of it underlines the promise that was made to Abram. And you can imagine you know, uh, this story being told to a little Israelite boy by his dad. And the Israelite boy would have been drilled from childhood, from his earliest days. What were the promises that were given to Father Abraham? Promise of land, a promise of uh, of blessing and a promise of of people and that blessing is going to be God will be our God there will be relationship and the dad's telling the son you know and and here's what Balaam said when he was told to curse the people of God the son would say really he you know God made him say father Abraham's promise again He made him hear it again. He made the people of God hear the promises again from this prophet. I said, that's our God, son. He can turn what was intended for harm into good. God's overturning power. And we see it over and over and over again in Scripture. We see it with Joseph in those verses that I read. Joseph it wasn't a moment of revelation when his brothers came to him and said, look, look, we, you know, our father told, told us that you were to go easy on us, you know. Um, he, and Joseph says, oh, you intended it for harm, but, oh, it's just struck me God meant it for good. That's not what it is, because 17 years previous, when Joseph revealed himself to the brothers, Joseph said to them, so then it was not you who sent me but God. It would seem that even throughout his being sold as a slave, being mistreated by Potiphar, being put in prison, being forgotten in prison, that Joseph was dwelling on the fact that God is the one who can turn what is for our seeming harm into what is for our good. We read in Genesis thirty-nine twenty-one. 
Um, another one of these, but the Lord versus, that's where it's translated in the New American Standard Version. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the eyes of the chief jailer. I don't know how much Joseph was aware of God working behind the scenes, but certainly in his words, it seems that he was aware of it. That he knew that God could take what was intended for harm and use it for good. And that's a wonderful verse at Genesis 50 verse 20. Because it says to us that in the exact moment that his brothers are intending it for harm, God is a vaster plan. He's not playing catch up. He's not saying something happened and go, oh, I've got to try and figure this one out and bring good out of it. No, while they're plotting evil, God's saying, you think it's to curse, but actually I'm going to make this a blessing. That's what he's like. And what a blessing it was through Joseph. Through the wicked actions of men, he's going to place his man on the throne of Egypt, or beside the throne of Egypt, so to speak, to bring salvation to his brothers and to the world. He overturns the curse. We could just keep picking examples. Ruth. Ruth, bereaved, bereft. And what does she find? She finds that what seemed to be for hurt God uses it for great blessing in her life. And more so because Ruth is a Moabite. And of all the people where where you actually see God turning a curse into a blessing, we read that no Moabite was, was to be allowed into the assembly of God's people. And yet God in his wonderful sovereignty brings in Ruth, who was in a sense doubly cursed, a Moabite, and then this uh, bereaved uh, young woman. And being left, as it were, alone and helpless, she could have been in her own country. And she comes to this new country and she finds immense blessing. The overturning power of God. We could go with Esther, we could go with Daniel, we could go with Moses. And over it all could be written, you meant it for harm, but God intended it for good. Or, God turned the curse into a blessing for you. That's not the only thing. This is the story of the whole Bible in this one little half verse. In Eden, Satan comes to ruin everything. And what's the outcome? God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Not just a pronouncement, but a reality. It's ruined. Thorns and thistles, and man is going to suffer death, he's going to suffer illness, he's going to suffer sin and temptation. But what happens? Satan's efforts are overturned. He intended it for harm. But in the very moment that he's plotting the downfall of mankind, God has planned the uplifting of mankind. And what the first Adam lost in the fall, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives us in far greater measure. The African preacher, Augustine, way back 
about 400 years after Christ, had the, the bravery and the boldness to say of Adam and Eve's sin, O happy sin. O happy sin. Because what he saw was that what we have now because of Jesus is much greater than what Adam lost in his fall. It's not simply a reversal. Here is the staggering, overturning power of God at work, not just way back then for the children of Israel, not just in Joseph's life, but this is the story of how God works and it's how he's working in our lives. We have gained in Christ more than was lost in Adam. We have a more exalted position. We have a more noble nature. We are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. We have a new standing with God. We have a better inheritance. We have a closer relationship. And God still does this overturning. This isn't something limited to the pages of Scripture. I can't tell you the whole story because I need to keep going. But William Carey um, had spent a life, well not quite a lifetime, a large chunk of his his life working in India uh, and translating the the Bible into the languages of India. In fact, writing down the languages of India uh, some of the languages of India, Sanskrit and languages like that, and building a printing press and writing dictionaries. And this they had this building um, built and uh, 200, and 200 feet by 50 feet, 20 translators working in it. There were typesetters, compositors, pressmen, binders, all sorts of people you need to work in a printing press. And on March the 11th, 1812, A fire started and everything was burnt to the ground. And it was all lost. All his work. Years and years of labor. He said, um, well, there were ten translations of the Bible lost. Two grammar books. His Bengali dictionary. His Sanskrit dictionary. All the typesets for printing in 14 different languages. Vast quantities of English paper. Priceless dictionaries. Deeds and account books were all gone. In one short evening, he said, the labors of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. I had lately brought some things to the utmost perfection of which they seemed capable and contemplated the missionary establishment with perhaps too much self-congratulation. The Lord has laid me low that I may look more simply to him. And although he was heartbroken, he threw himself back into the work. But... News of what had happened spread to America and to Europe. And in just 50 days in England and Scotland alone, £10,000 were raised for rebuilding the publishing enterprise. And so much money was coming in uh, that uh, Andrew Fuller, who was organising um, in England the, this, all the, the fundraising, said we must stop the contributions. And so many volunteers came to India to help that the printing press was rebuilt, the printing operation expanded, and they published complete Bibles or portions of Bibles in 44 languages and dialects. Imagine Satan, yes, burnt down the printing press, that'll set them back. (laughs) Will it what? Um, 
The Lord turned a curse into a blessing because he loves his people. See in the news this week that Asher's prophets have increased. The Lord has turned a curse into a blessing because he loves his people. Numbers 23.11 Balak says to Balaam, I brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. If you don't know if you've read the screw tape letters, those fictional letters by C.S. Lewis, imagining what a senior devil would write to a junior devil. Well, I like to think of that verse in the mouth of Satan to a junior demon, you know, about William Carey. Uh, I, just, I brought you to curse my enemies, but all oh, you've done nothing but bless them. Look, they've got a bigger printing press now. And imagine Satan's frustration. He sets out to spoil the image and relationship of God's people to God in Genesis. And what's he done? He's only made it greater. He's only made it possible for us to be closer. He set out time and time again to stamp out God's people. And what's happened? God's people have flourished. God always turns Satan's curses into blessings. Satan can't pronounce a malediction because it's always turned into a benediction. Every time he tries to say one thing, to say, curse them, God changes into bless them. And how that should encourage us as a church And as individuals, should encourage us as a church because what Satan seeks to do to harm the church, whether it's persecution in Pakistan, whether it's uh, sad and hard things in, in the church closer to home, whatever happens, God uses things for the good of his people. He does it um, in, in, individuals lives too God turns the curse into a blessing overturning power and then secondly overwhelming love overwhelming love not simply a display of power or skill or genius this isn't God showing off look at how skillful I am look at how great my power is stand in amazement of me and see that there's nothing too tricky but I can't get you out of it because this is all bathed in his love for us look at how intensely personal the language is and this little obscure bit of scripture it's intensely personal however the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam but turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. The Lord your God loves you. I was reading a book uh, last Sabbath, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And it's about a Muslim man uh, setting out actually to try and prove his Christian friend wrong. And they've been talking about sin and there's this conversation that's recorded. Well, uh, Nabil, uh, the Muslim fellow, says, well, the gravity was slowly sinking in. And after a few heavy moments, I spoke, 
Then what hope is there for us, David? David smiled reassuringly, only the grace of God. But why would he give me his grace? Nabil said, well, because he loves you. Why would he love me, a sinner? And his friend David Wood replied, because he's your father. David's words hit me powerfully. I'd heard Christians call God Father, but it had never clicked. Only when trying to figure out why God would give me mercy and grace when I deserved none did the gears start turning. I couldn't speak. It was all connecting. Would I ever question why my own father loved me? He had loved me since I was born. Since the day he first spoke the call to prayer into my ear. He had loved me not because of anything I did, but because he was my father. I never doubted his love and generosity toward me, not because I had somehow earned his favour, but because I was his son. Now, we might not agree with all of the, the parallel here, but, but here's what he says. Remember, this is a Muslim. There is no title for Allah describing him as being loving or love. And this is what hits him. Was this really how God loved me? Could God be that loving? Could he be that wonderful? It was as if I was meeting my heavenly father for the first time. After having just confronted the depravity of my sins, his forgiveness and love was that much sweeter. This God, the God of the gospel, was beautiful. I was spellbound by his message. My heart and my mind were caught in the beginnings of a revolution. He's starting to see that the God of the Bible is a God who could be his God and who had done this very thing because he loved him. And note the present tense. Not what I've just said, loved, but loves. Look at what it says. Because the Lord your God loves you. You know, and earlier in Deuteronomy, Moses had said, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. It's Deuteronomy 7, uh, verse 7 and 8. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers and brought you out of Egypt. He loves you. How much that must have meant to Israel to hear that again and to be reminded of it just as they're about to go into the promised land. But how much more it should mean to us. This side of the cross. We know the depths of that love. But this verse helps us to see with fresh eyes the depth of the love. It is in the turning of the curse into a blessing that reveals the depth of God's love. How do we know God loves us? Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Speaking there about judicial execution. It's not speaking 
uh, you know, about somebody who would go out and hang himself. It's speaking about someone who has been judicially executed as a sign of God's judgment. Cursed is everyone who is hung up on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loves you. Think of it. The curse came because the first Adam went to a tree. The blessing came because the last Adam went to the tree. The curse brought thorns as part of the judgment and the cursed one wears the crown of thorns on the tree in judgment. The curse highlighted the nakedness of the people and then they were ashamed. Christ became a curse and was crucified in nakedness and shame so that we could receive blessing. The curse brought forsakenness as they were cast out of the garden. The first Adam forsaken by God. The last Adam forsaken by God so that we would never be forsaken. Whenever the King James translators were translating uh, and they were, they were describing the two thieves on either side of Christ. The, the, there's a word they use, an old, old word. It is crucified between two malefactors. Um, and I heard somebody once saying, you know, it's appropriate. It says, because there is Christ. He has become a doer of wrong. That's, that's what it means. He has become a curse. And there he is receiving our malediction, our word of judgment, the bad word, uh, receiving our malediction so we could receive his benediction. He takes the curse so that you could hear the blessing. The blessing that belonged to the Son is given to you. And the forsakenness and the silence that should have been yours when you would cry out, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And there's silence. That should have been yours. But the Son gets it so that you can hear. This is my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And it's intensely personal. Just as this verse highlights for us. He turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loves you. Here's an overwhelming love that overturns every one of Satan's maledictions and makes it a benediction. Overturns every one of Satan's curses, as it were, and makes them into a blessing. We see the lengths God goes to to do this. He became a curse for us. And one last quote. I think I quoted it recently from uh, an old Scottish uh, Hebrew scholar uh, contemplating uh, Psalm 22 
in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and the writer says this. It was the winter of 1864 and Dr. Duncan was reading part of Isaiah with his senior class. Something the text brought to mind the cry of Psalm 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So now here is Rabbi Duncan. He has left his desk. He has bent nearly double. He paces up and down in front of the students' benches. One hand holds his handkerchief and snuff box. It was 1864. The other a huge pinch of snuff. These are forgotten as he muses on the Lord's suffering for sinners, turning the matter over in his mind, utterly absorbed. Suddenly a flash seems to go through him. His face lights up. His hand goes up. Snuff flies as he turns to the class and pleads with them. Aye, aye, do you know what it was? Dying on the cross, forsaken by his father. Do you know what it was? What? What? These last words were said as if he had received a partial but not complete answer from someone and was trying to drag the whole answer out of a student. Then he answered his own question. What? It was damnation. And damnation taken lovingly. With that he dropped into his chair. His head straight and stiff. His arms hanging down either side of the chair. His face beaming. Tears trickling down his cheeks. Then he repeated in a mix between a half sob and a half laugh. It was damnation. And he took it lovingly. Now, does that not give us hope? We have infinite power and we have infinite love meeting in our God and he's our God. And he has turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. And if he's done it for that, all of these other but gods scattered throughout our Bibles remind us that if he's done, the, done it in the greatest way, he'll do it in every other circumstance. And what Paul's saying in Romans 8, that God works all things for the good of his people. He doesn't mean that on average over the course of our lives, most of the things will actually turn out mostly for good. He means that everything that Satan is sent to harm us and to hurt us will be turned and used for good. Not one circumstance of life in a sinful world or in a broken world for God's people as they trust God will be wasted. All things. All things. Why? Because the Lord your God loves you. He will turn everything, every curse, into a blessing. And so we can say to ourselves and to Satan, you intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. That's our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you. For this verse does not simply show us your actions, but it shows us you. It shows us your power and it shows us your love. 
And we worship you for these things. And we worship you for how your power and your love turned the curse of sin into a blessing for us. We worship you. We praise you. We couldn't have invented such a story. Who would have come up with a scheme in which the mighty God of heaven would love little creatures like us this much and would do all of this for us? But, O Lord God, help us to remember this. Whenever we're discouraged, despairing, whenever life seems to have taken a nosedive and we are in the middle of dark circumstances and the light hasn't dawned, help us to hang on to your power and your love, knowing that it is certain that the Lord will turn the curse into a blessing for us because the Lord our God loves us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.